This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafuma. Mark Thompson. Get woke. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Our next panel, our next topic for presentation is actually ending the cycle of police violence in America. A very important topic we know uh, to all of us. Some of us were just at the Department of Justice Tuesday on the one year anniversary of the ascension of Jalen Walker who was shot by the Akron police 46 times, June 27, 2022. 90 shots fired within 6.7 seconds, 46 hitting our brother Jalen. No charges for the officers involved in Akron. We went to the Department of Justice hoping that they would institute a pattern and practice investigation in the same way they did in uh, Minneapolis. We know that you know, these stories don't make as much prominent news as they should. And we know that we were all a captive audience in 2020. Otherwise, we may not have gotten the coverage. We were all home watching television. Otherwise, we may not have seen or understood as much about Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. But these lynchings are still going on in this country every day, and there are many we still don't hear about. And if not for some of you, there are many more we wouldn't hear about. That's why it's important that our local black press remain empowered. Who better to have than someone who is called to this work? Without him, I don't know what we would do. You know, we need people like us in law enforcement. When Ados decided to come after Kamala Harris because she was a prosecutor, we were like, wait a minute, we don't want any black prosecutors? We don't want black attorneys general? We must have them. And in, in, you know, in, the, in the prayerful hopes that they will be like us and hold these institutions accountable. That's all I'm gonna say about my dear brother for whom I have the highest regard, but I'm gonna have Dr. Chavis come forward to say some words about our very special and very honorable presenter today on Ending the Cycle of Police Violence in America, Dr. Chavis. Let's give Mark another hand. He's done an excellent job being our moderator in all these multiple panels um, to the millions of people who are listening on the live stream. Sisters and brothers, this is another day that the Lord has made. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves that the Supreme Court is not the ultimate court. But we are thankful and grateful that the good state of Minnesota made the wise choice, the historic election, because people came out and voted in record numbers. I remember when Congressman Keith Ellison decided to leave the Congress 
Uh, he was a distinguished member of the Congressional Black Caucus. He was the chair of the Progressive Caucus of the United States Congress. Had a distinguished congressional career. But he decided to leave Congress to go back to his home state and to run for a statewide office. Uh, in, in Minnesota, you have to be elected to be the attorney general of the state. And as God would have it, he not only won the election, but he was in the right place at the right time after George Floyd was murdered. If it hadn't been for this brother being the attorney general of Minnesota, that police officer would have got away with murder. And so to the listening audience and to the National Newspaper Publishers Association, we, said, we couldn't think of a better person as we celebrate the 196th year of the Black Press of America, we convened here in the great city of Nashville, Tennessee at our convention. We only have one keynote address, and it's gonna be with the Honorable, the Honorable, the Honorable Attorney General Keith Ellison. The Honorable Attorney General Keith Ellison from the state of Minnesota. Let's hear for our leader, Reverend Ben Chavis, my brother, putting, putting it in for the long term. He's qualified to offer an opinion on the matter. Don't you think so? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, friends, I must say that uh, one of the reasons I was so incredibly gratified, so honored to receive your invitation is because if there's any entity in the United States of America that has documented and told the story of people like George Floyd, it is the black press. It is you, it is you. You didn't start doing it yesterday. You've been at it for a long, long, long time. It was the black press that documented when uh, the 1919 Chicago race riot, when, right? You know, the, you, know you, you, you wrote about it, you wrote it up and talked about how a black child swimming in the white section of the Lake Michigan uh, killed by ruffians. Black parents say, hey, this is wrong. They get attacked. Y'all wrote about that. And don't forget about people uh, who were victims of police brutality in years gone by, like, well, quite honestly, <laughs> Dr. Ben Chavis being one of them. It was official misconduct that, that uh, landed you, you know, where you, you know, got you in the, in the struggle you were in. But uh, don't forget the great Isaac, y'all remember Isaac Woodard, a sergeant in the United States Army, distinguished himself in military service five hours after being released, was attacked and his eyes were gouged out with the handle of a of a, of a police blackjack, and it was the black press that raised this point where not even President Truman could ignore it. I said Truman, I didn't say Trump. Kennedy. Well, I didn't say for sure, I didn't say that. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, but this is a long ago. I mean, there, this is likely before the memory of most of us in this room. I mean, but, but this is how long you have been on the very forefront of making sure people understood. And if people don't know, that is how they get away with it. I, I wrote this book, and um, the reason I wrote it is 
we need to break the wheel uh, of, of this police violence. And I just want to say before I launch into my comment that um, I've had different kind of conversations with people. It was like, well, Brother Keith, you know, the pastors are, are burying black babies all the time because of gun violence stuff we do to each other. I'm like, you know what? We do need to deal with community violence. There's no question about that. But there's a big difference between official government agents of the state and private citizens. If the, if the state is using arbitrary violence against you, you cannot call the state to save you. But if a private citizen does a crime against you, you call the police and, you know, God willing, something will happen, but you know, but you have someone to turn to. If you want to, we all talk about democracy. We talk about voting, the importance of voting, do we not? We talk about jury service. We talk about all these aspects of democratic participation. But if the state is chronically brutalizing you with the instrumentality of the state under color of law, that is what we call fundamental human rights abuse. You understand what I'm trying to say? I mean, if, we, if they were doing, if Putin was doing it in Moscow, we'd all say, oh my God, this is human rights abuse. Well, it's been happening here more than there. So I just want to say, uh, this is a critical issue, and I want to talk about why I'm grateful to you for highlighting it, how we can break the wheel, and what's in front of us at the moment. I want to give uh, nothing but love to my local Minneapolis black press, folks with newspaper, please give them a hand. They got it. And when I got to the United States Congress, doctor, uh, I ran into a, a, a great young man, dynamic leader, smart, kind, generous with his time, Kendrick Meek. Uh, he's here working with you guys today. There he is. Please give your hand to him. And, and uh, everybody, if I just stopped and thanked everybody, I wouldn't be able to talk about anything. So please know that I appreciate all of you, and I'm grateful for you, and I love you very much. But we can break the cycle of inaction. What we see is that case after case after case ha uh, of police, of official misconduct occurring, and it has such an, a, a routine effect that it begins to have a cumulative impact where we feel that, look, we are not receiving the protection of the law. We, are, we can't even call the protection of the law because the law is, the, the, the agents of the law are part and parcel of what is suppressing our ability to engage and be citizens in the state. So this is what I want to talk to you about. I am appealing to you because I know that you are the ones who can, okay, so this clicker's not clicking, y'all. You are the ones who can make sure that this conversation doesn't die. You are the ones who can make sure that Breanna Taylor's memory is not lost. You're the ones who will make sure that Sandra Bland is not forgotten. You're the one who's, who's going to help people understand that you can't confuse private individual crime with official misconduct. They're not the same. Very different. Okay, so I was hoping to avoid technical difficulty. Oh, here we go. And I, I want to start the conversation 
by just establishing some baseline. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. I am, and, and uh, who said that? Y'all, you, you're thinking, oh, that must have been something that Malcolm X said. No, that was the president of the United States said that. It is a rule, it's a law, that if you don't allow people to make change, through normal means. We're not saying they should use extra, extra legal means. We're saying that they will. So why not avoid that by creating pathways for lawful change? Using our First Amendment freedom of the press, you all have done your part for legitimate means of change by informing the people. But there's no, there's no mistake in the fact that when these tragic incidents happen, people take to the streets, and then if no relief happens, even things can get worse. Wow. Okay. So I've got to go back. So I want to start with a conversation about the status quo. The status quo is where we are now. The status quo, and, and because we debate, should we make change? What would that mean? If we make the change, uh, will, will that be better? Well, what we have now in our cities is not just massive loss of life, which all of you are well aware of, but if you just look at the status quo, we are spending literally millions and millions, maybe even approaching billion when you add it all up, on police misconduct civil rights lawsuits. So name your city, Miami, Whatever city you got, D.C., Chicago, come on now, where are you from? Los Angeles, Memphis, Lord, Memphis, uh, you know, Newark. 538's analysis shows that cities have spent more than $3 billion to settle police misconduct lawsuits over the last 10 years. Do you have a homeless problem in your town? Do you have a just infrastructure problem? How's the roads doing? Are they still bumpy from this last Winter, yes, they are, particularly in the uh, neighborhoods we live in. Do you have a problem with trying to get more mental health folks? What about teachers? You got enough of them? I mean, have, you know, inflation has gone up. Have public employees gotten the raises that they need to keep up? Obviously, the answer is no. We're spending money on police misconduct, things that never should have happened. And let me tell you, before I was ever a state legislator or a member of Congress or an attorney general, I was, I was suing the police for misconduct. So I know a little bit about this kind of stuff and I'm telling you, they do not hand over checks. You got to come with some real evidence. You know, the, you got to go beyond being able to prove what happened. They're not paying you nothing. Their strategy is we're gonna take it to trial because we wanna scare people off from holding us accountable. New York City, 2019, paid out $175 million in civil judgments. Chicago, 85 million to settle police misconduct lawsuits. In 2000, since 2003, Minneapolis, my town, which is not a big town. Y'all from New York, y'all from LA, y'all from Chicago. We're, we're, a little, we're like a little mid-tier town. We're forking over 100, that says 70 million, it's wrong. It's, since then, it's $100 million. And I know, because my son's on the Minneapolis City Council and he has to approve 
or deny these settlements. It's like, I can't believe that we're wasting money on this. But that's the status quo. That's how it is now. Anybody who says we can't change, tell them how expensive are we willing, how much are we willing to pay for misconduct? Not only civil judgments, the cost of civil unrest. When you have, remember the Kennedy quote, when you have a series of abuses over time, somebody somewhere is going to get sick of it and you're going to get what? Civil disturbance, right? Name me a time where it has not happened. It's happened everywhere. It's happened everywhere. In fact, you know, Kendrick, and, 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 you know, I know you, you, know, you, you don't live in, my, in Miami now, but, uh, you know, uh, it was after a tragic incident of police violence in the 1950s when the police chief said, the, when, the, when, the, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. That, right? That was, the, that was there. And then Trump repeats it. But that was an old phrase. That was an old saying when Trump said it. It had been said. Because when you have a long series of events, I remember when I was three and a half years old in the city of my birth and where I grew up, Detroit, Michigan, and I'm on my tiptoes looking at all these military vehicles driving by because they're going to Davidson and Rosa Parks Boulevard where the so-called riot was going on, sparked by what? Police misconduct. So these, you know, if you look at $500 million in damages in Minneapolis alone in the aftermath of George Floyd, across 20 states could cost insurance companies a billion to $2 billion because we had, we had uh, civil disturbance all over the country. And this is just, uh, this is the, cost, the costliest U.S. civil disorders. I mean, check it out. Uh, if you look at all of them, but just between, in the aftermath of George Floyd, we're looking at one to two billion. But if you look at in 1992, LA, LA alone after Rodney King, in those in 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 those in, in 1992 dollars, 775 million. LA uh, that had, in the Watts riot, uh, riot so-called riot, 44 million. Detroit, Michigan, 42 million. And these are the dollars of the day. In this last column, they're much higher. And this just has the bigger towns on it. You can keep going. You can keep going to Teaneck, New Jersey. You can keep going. This is the status quo. This is what we got now. According to America on Fire by Yale University law professor Elizabeth Hinton, between 1964 and 2001, 22 years ago, there were nearly 2,000 urban rebellions in the, in the United States that were sparked by racially biased policing. When you see this, yes, think about broken glass. Yes, think about fires. Yes, think about upset people. Think about people who might have been killed. But also, think about the dollar figure that is attached to it. You all are not just journalists. You're also business people. The city could give you money to help you upgrade your business. But they can't if they're paying out for police misconduct, right? That's right. Now, the use of deadly force nationally, loss of life. George Floyd, think George Floyd, so he just won. About 1,000 people are killed by the police annually. In 2020, only 18 days where the police did not kill somebody. And from 2013 to 2020, police officers were not charged with a crime and 98.3 of the officer-involved deaths. Now, as a person who's been a prosecutor, a defense attorney, and a civil lawyer, 
not every officer involved death is a crime by the police. I know some people don't want to hear that, but I can assure you there were cases that I could show you where you would have shot too. I'm serious. But let me tell you, it ain't 98.3%. That means you're never wrong. That means you're never wrong. But that's, I, I, would say, I would say that even if you give them half, which is a dubious proposition, there's still another half who's dead and shouldn't be. In 2020, 46 police officers were murdered in the line of duty. 37 have been murdered in the line of duty since 2021. So, what I'm, so think about that. This is not just about saving civilian lives. The way we do policing in America is damaging to the people we ask to do the job. It's, it, I'm telling you, they report high rates of suicide. They report high rates of depression, anxiety, alcoholism, and domestic violence because of the, because what we're asking, and when I say we, I don't really mean we, us, but what the larger society is asking them to do, which is basically contain us, keep us on the Bantu stand, right? That's really what's going on here. So more than half of the police killing, killings by the police go unreported. We don't know. We say 1,000, but they might be well, easily be 2,000. There's a study that dug into this. Now, there's the issue of justice. And when I say justice, think wrongful conviction. So much of wrongful conviction. Think about the Central Park Five, now the Exonerated Five. How do they end up wrongfully convicted doing time for crimes they didn't commit? Often it's connected to police misconduct. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is witness tampering, lying to witnesses, you know, perjury at trial, saying you saw stuff you didn't see. When I was a criminal defense lawyer, we said, oh, did your officer test a lie yet? No, he doesn't test a lie till one o'clock. <laughs> So again, I'm not saying all police officers lie, many are truthful, but it was seemed so frequent to us that we, we talked about it like that. Fabricating evidence happens. Misconduct and interrogation, concealing exculpatory evidence. And there's another category. There is a whole category of officers who sexually abuse women. It's like, okay, you have a drug problem, you're going, to meet, you're going to come in the back seat and you're going to take care of me and then maybe I will not arrest you. There was this case in Oklahoma City where this officer was just routinely abusing black women sexually. And it's not, it's sadly it happens quite a lot. And so this is misconduct, well, that's not the only extent. And by no means do I want to say this is all cops. It's not. It really isn't. And that's part of the tragic situation here. For the officers who are there to try to protect and serve, to try to solve the murder of your neighbor, your nephew, they don't deserve to operate under this kind of cloud that people like Derek Chauvin are imposing on them. Now, there's one thing that you can't count. I could put a number on everything I showed you, but you can't put a number on broken trust, loss of trust. But let me tell you, 
when you have a tragic incident of police brutality, you see a reduction in calls to 911 because people feel like they're not here for us. People don't come forward with information. I'm a prosecutor. You rape, rob, or murder somebody, I am going to charge you with a crime and hold you accountable. That is what I do. But if people don't trust the investigation, how are we supposed to do that? The black community is not just over-policed, it's under-protected. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Folks, we need good cops. We got to have them. But you go to somebody in their 20s and say, you know, you're in good shape, you're smart, you're compassionate, you're courageous. Would you join the police force? And they're like, nope. This is not a good thing. People expect me to tell, oh, don't join the police department. I tell them, you should join the police department because there's going to be somebody there. I'd rather have you there than somebody who's like Derek Chauvin. And I'm telling you, there are great cops. Does anybody ever, anybody here from Buffalo? There's a woman named Carrie L. Horn. She's a cop. One day, about 15, 20, 13, 16 years ago, she went to make an arrest and she cuffed her person and she walked into the squad car. She went in and took her person out, but the partner she went in there with was supposed to be arrested his, his suspect and walk out with them. They still in there. She goes back in and what's going on? This dude is pounding on an in custody cuffed suspect. She goes, man, what are you doing? What are you doing? And she sort of tries to stop him. He punches her. Carrie L. Horn. She punches him back. Because Carrie L. ain't no punk. So Carrie L. Uh, thinks, okay, now, you know what? This dude's going to be in a lot of trouble. I'm going to make a report about what he did when I get back to the station. And, of course, all of us agree, this guy's going to be in trouble. He's going to be in trouble, right? Wrong. She got under administrative leave. He said she interfered with a lawful arrest. And, I, you know, and she's the one who got not only, she got fired and lost her pension and but for some enterprising uh, public interest lawyers at Kirkland and Ellis and Harvard Law School, she would have never got her pension back. They fought, got her back in court, got her pension restored, and the Buffalo City Council passed something called Carriel's Law, which is a law that requires police to intervene when they see police misconduct. I tell you this story because I don't want you to get the impression all police are all bad. That's not true. But what happens, you get departments where you get a minority of bullies and racists and liars, and then everybody else is like, I'm just trying to get along around here. And so you see Rodney King, 17 people watching Rodney King get his brains beat out, nobody intervening, because they know that if they do, it's not going their way. You follow what I'm saying? Because Daryl Gates is in charge. <laughs> Damage to the city 
and trust, social disintegration, exploiting divisions. So that's the problem. It also has negative implications for foreign policy. Me and Kendrick used to be in Congress dealing with foreign policy. You know, here's the deal. The fire was already burning. All Putin had to do was pour on some gasoline. The, pol the polarization of American society has become a national security threat acting as a barrier to collective action necessary for combating catastrophes. During the Floyd crisis, Russian assets were sending messages trying to antagonize tensions within our country. They're using American racism and police brutality to weaken and divide our country. Another reason we got to break the wheel, right? And so here's the thing. You all know who this gentleman is. His name is Kenneth Clark. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but if you would indulge me, does anybody know who he is? Let me tell you a little bit about this young man. He was a sociologist. And many years before he testified in front of the current commission, he was the witness that Thurgood Marshall used to prove that segregation was damaging to black school children. He was the witness in the Brown versus Board of Education, and he did a doll study. Now you're starting to remember it, right? Where he, he, he showed black dolls and white dolls to black kids, and he asked them things like, which one is pretty? Well, it's a piece of plastic. Which one is smart? It's a piece of plastic. Which one is good? And they were choosing the white dial over the black. Black kids were. Well, of course they were. We trained to taught to despise ourselves. Our nose is wrong, our hair is wrong, our skin's wrong, everything about us is wrong. You all know this. You know how we were fighting the defamation of blackness, right? But then they asked the question, which one looks like you? And they all pointed to the black kid the black doll. Kenneth Clark showed and helped prove that segregation was not just separation, but was oppression. Many years later, from 54 to 67, he testifies at the Kerner Commission because Lyndon Johnson asked um, scholars and activists and folks from all over the country to come and study why we're having all these urban rebellions in the 60s and how to deal with it. And they issue the Kerner Commission report. Here's what he says. I read that report of the 1919 riot in Chicago and it was if I were reading the report of the investigative committee on the Harlem riot of 1935, the report of the investigative committee on the Harlem riot of 1943, the report of the McCone Commission on the Watts riot in 66, I must again in all candor say to you members of this commission, it's a kind of Alice in Wonderland with the same moving picture reshown over and over again with the same analysis, the same recommendations, and the same, all together now, I can add on, the Christopher Commission after the beating of Rodney King. I could add on the 21st century policing investigation after Ferguson. 
up till this very second, my friends, unending stream of official abuse and misconduct aimed at the African community here in our country. And it's our country. You show up in Nigeria, they're going to say, hello, stranger. <laughs> well, they might even say, welcome home, brothers. But you know, you got a blue passport and we don't. This is our country, only one we got. We got nothing to do but make it better. Y'all been doing that for a long time. And we can make this better. Now, I want you to know that before Rodney King was ever not Rodney King, before George Floyd was ever attacked by Derek Chauvin, I found myself to be the first black attorney general in the state of Minnesota. So I worked with colleagues to have a task force on reducing deadly force encounters with police. I'm not naive. I know we're not going to get nothing through the state legislature unless you got cops on that commission. So I got some. I also got Black Lives Matter people. I also got some folks from the black press, y'all, y'all know. Batala McFarland, I hope. We, we got uh, the mix. We got the ACLU people on there, and we came up with 28 recommendations that we all could agree on. We knocked heads. A few people cussed each other out and stormed out of the room, but they came back, and we got somewhere. We released it in February 2020, and then Rodney King, and then George Floyd happened. So... This is, even I've done my own study, but, you know, we've got to continue. This fight has got to go on. You know, um, but I want you to see this, and this is important, because we all feel like this is a hopeless problem that will never be solved, don't, don't we? I know I felt that way. But it's not. Newark police officers fired zero shots in 2020, reform overhaul cited. Do you know that? Now, some people say, well, Keith, Newark is not perfect. Where is, right? Where is? Show me that place. But they were able to reduce deadly force encounters between police and civilians. The most ambitious effort yet to reform policing may be happening in Ithaca, New York. Rethinking policing, how Camden, New Jersey reimagined force. And in these, these three cities, they have dramatically reduced violent encounters with police. They have started finding more guns. Why are they finding more guns? Because people now have better trust and will tell them things. The murder clearance rate in Minneapolis is 38%. You know what that means? Somebody murders your loved one in Minneapolis, only 38% of those cases are charged and prosecuted and you know, solved. Now, if there was trust, there'd be more cleared cases. There's no trust. I ain't calling them. I argue with people all the time. Snitching is when me and you commit crimes, I get caught, and in exchange for a reduced sentence, I tell on you. That's snitching. I know that you committed a crime because I'm a citizen who lives in this neighborhood, and I call the police on you. That's being a stand-up citizen. Don't get that twisted. I got nothing to gain but a safer neighborhood. I'm not trying to negotiate. I'm not selling dope and poisoning the community, turn around and be like, oh, well, so I want to get, here's my get out of jail free card. Now, people do that all the time, and that's the way our system is set up, but it's not snitching. And I would ask y'all to help reinforce that message. It's not snitching if you know somebody is hurting the community, committing murders, turning up bodies, 
You know something about it? It's good to tell on that. And yet that doesn't make you a snitch. That makes you want to live in a safe neighborhood. Now, I want to submit to you that no one is above the law and no one is beneath the law. By letting this problem persist, we're saying that George Floyd is beneath the law. He's so low down and unimportant. His life doesn't matter, so it's okay if, if something horrible happens to him. And Derek Chauvin is above the law. He can do whatever he wants, and he never has to remain accountable. This is a principle that was very clear in the very beginning. I, I'll tell you this. When, when, when George Floyd was murdered at 1.14 a.m., that video that Darnella Frazier posted got on, the, on, on there. Within 24 hours, 2.5 million people saw it. Let me tell you, uh, when I saw that at 4.44 a.m., and I know exactly what time it is because I know exactly when my alarm goes off, my staff member said, look at this first. I touched it, and I couldn't believe it. And yet I could. And yet I couldn't. And yet I could. You know, my, my wife is from Colombia, and they had the longest ongoing civil war uh, for, many, for a 65-year war, more displaced people than any other country in the world, uh, except Syria. I say, hey, hey, you got to see this. She goes, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. Are there any of you in this room who just who knew what was there and just didn't want to see it? Well, I, I, uh, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And then after I watched it two or three times, I started counting the number of times he called for his mother. Counting the number of times he asked. He said, I can't breathe. And then when he stopped talking, counting the number of times people said, check his pulse. Counting the number of times people said, get off of him. I could tell that he was likely dead when they loaded him on the gurney and he didn't even have enough control over his head. His neck wasn't holding his body and he just flopping around. The people on the scene didn't know he was dead because they couldn't believe that the police would actually murder somebody over nine and a half minutes. But you will recall the first number was what? 846. Anybody remember that number? What we found in our investigation, it was 929. So if you thought it was horrible at 846, we found it was even longer than that. I knew that, it, and, and, and I tell you, you know, on that Monday the tragedy happens, that Tuesday people are in the street, that Wednesday they're in the street more, that Thursday the county attorney um, uh, has a press conference, uh, that Friday he's calling me to help him with the case, which I agree to. By Sunday, the governor's saying, we want you to leave this case. Because, and I say this in pure humility, and, and my Minneapolis friends know this is true. I'm not boasting. I'm just telling the truth. Somehow, for some real reason, people thought I would not sell out the case. And they were right. I sure wasn't going to, but don't make no mistake about that. I wasn't no hero. I had lost cases. I won most of them. But not far from where the spokesman newspaper is. Not far at all. Two blocks south of where George Floyd was killed in 1997, a young man named Lawrence Miles was shot 100% in the back 
two blocks north of where George Floyd was killed. He didn't die. He was 15. Me and my partners, we represented the, Mr. Lawrence Miles, and we brought the case to court. There was no chance of the criminal prosecution. And we brought that case to court, and we put all the evidence in. We showed through medical examination that he could not have even seen the officer. He was 100% turned away from the officer, and he was shot in the back. The officer said, we thought he had a gun in his hand, and he maybe, had, he, maybe he did have a water pistol in his hand, but when he got shot, we don't believe that he did. We put that case in front of a jury, and we lost. There was a defense verdict. We sunk $200,000 into that case, which is a lot of money in 1997. Came up with zero. The city wouldn't try to negotiate. The city wouldn't try to settle. And after we won the Floyd case, Lawrence Miles comes to me and she says, well, I see you just won that case. Do you think there's anything you can do about my case? Because I'm now 45. I can't breathe right. I can't walk right. I got chronic pain. Is there anything you guys can do? And I said, I don't think so, Lawrence. I think it's over. So before I ever was in a position where people thought I could bring justice to this situation, I had cried about the losses, which goes to show you there ain't no heroes in this world. There's just people who are faced with a challenge and have to step up or not and do their best. And sometimes it works out. And sometimes the losses that you've encountered qualify you to know what you're doing next time. You know what I mean? And I'm grateful for a chance for a next time. I want you to take a look at these pictures. How are they alike? They happen in Minnesota. How are they alike? They all are people who were on the scene when something happened. How are they alike? They were all were concerned enough to stand there. Another way they were like, this one, oh, excuse me, let me go back. This one in Duluth, this happened in Duluth in 1921. They burned down the police department to drag these three men, you see one, you see two, and you see three, to drag them out to murder them. And then after this incident, these people didn't, do, didn't burn the, the police station, but a few days later, the police station was burned down. So anybody lecturing us about the savagery of the terrorists who were, I mean, look, burning a police station is a horrible criminal act, and I do not condone it under any circumstances. But before you get ready to just condemn and lecture, will you also condemn and lecture on these? Will you do, let's say they're both wrong. But you want to say, we don't know nothing about that, but these people are bad, bad, bad. These, but now here, why are they different? These are all white, almost all white men. Might be some women in there. They're smiling. If you look at the faces, they're literally posing. Anybody here go hunting? Okay, I'm, a, I'm from a country family. I, you know, we go, we go get some turkeys or deer every now and again. And what do you do? You pose with that game you've got, right? That pheasant, you know, got your camo on. This looks to me like they're posing for a game for after hunting. 
Looks like they're holding up fish. I know y'all go fishing. Don't tell me the black folks ain't don't fish. You, you're holding up the fish, right? That's what it looks like. These people are not smiling. They're deeply distressed. They're calling for the sacred life of George Floyd, who was in the foreground. They have their, cam their, video their phones up, and they're multicultural. You see right here, you see this white woman. She was on a walk that day. She was not the only white person who stopped to say something. I want you to know that. You know, you know that the, the protests were multicultural, right? Well, this young fellow, I actually knew him by pure happenstance. I looked at this video that morning and I said, that kid looks familiar. He happened to be on the wrestling team with my kids who are his exact age. I've been knowing this kid his whole life. I just didn't recognize him. You know, when you, you know, kids, they look different. You know, we, after you get, you know, we look the same, you know, but they look different. So that was Donald. There was a 61-year-old man and there's a nine-year-old girl. This is Darnella Frazier who posted that video. This book is dedicated to Darnella and Gigi. Gigi is George Floyd's daughter. Two sets of Minnesotans. One of them rises to the occasion. One of them perpetuates racist terror. Don't tell me we haven't changed a little, but have we changed enough? I tell you, I have hope that these people are gonna, are gonna do the right thing. When this was happening, back when grandma and them were around, it's tough days for us, man. I put this picture up here because my brother, who was a Baptist minister, when he asked me about this case, he said, those people, did, so they didn't know George Floyd? Nope, none of them knew George Floyd. So they just walk out of the store and see a man on the ground? Yeah. And they stop? Yeah. And the police told them to get the F out of there, and they just stayed there anyway? Yep. And they pulled out the cameras? Yep. He said, that is the... That is the essence of the Good Samaritan story. Remember the Good Samaritan story. The Samar First of all, you couldn't even be, what it meant to be a Samaritan is that you were the other, the no-gooders, the other side of the track people, the heretics, the wrong ones, the bad ones. Right? Is this right? And so, that, so Jesus is asked, what does it mean to be a neighbor? He says, well, there was a Samaritan meaning one of them bad people who you don't like and the people you do respect, they did what? They were trained to know what was right and moral and just and they still said, oh, that guy might be lying in wait. That guy might not be right. And it was in a bad neighborhood, right? Was Jericho Road, Rev, was Jericho Road, is that the nice hood or where was that? That was... That was, that was a bad neighborhood, right? That was where you get bandits hanging out there all the time, right? But these people put themselves at personal risk to try to save their fellow human being. And they came back a year later, and they told what they saw. Not one of them made it through their testimony without tears. Somebody said, well, Keith, you know, how hard could this case be? It's on video. Man, I've been doing this long enough to know that that video can be manipulated. Uh, it was no, I did not see that video as some slam dunk. You need to put a person 
You want to stop this? You, get a, you put a person on the witness stand to tell what they saw and for the jury to feel that human emotion. I thought to myself, these people were randomly selected by whatever you want to say. God, fate, whatever. Randomly selected. They were going to the store on Memorial Day to pick up snacks. And they happened to be there. And the jury also randomly selected, get a summons in the mail, show up. I said, these people are relatable to those people. We put them on the witness stand first. We started with them. We could have started when the case started. We could have started when, when Thomas Lane stuck a gun in George Floyd says, and get, said, get your F and show me your F in hands. Because they started out with George Floyd rough. Did you know George Floyd never cussed at him, never said, F you, I ain't doing nothing. You don't tell me, cop. You know, nothing like that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. George Floyd was always more well-composed and polite and gentle than any of those four officers deserved. Let me move on. I know we got to get going. Lessons from the Chauvin trial. You can win these cases. Let me just tell you, the first thing that happened from the Minneapolis Police Department is they say that a man who was inebriated died of a medical emergency. That was their first statement. Lie. Next thing that happens is that there was, you all know what a criminal complaint is? It is the document that the prosecutor files to commence the prosecution. The county attorney submitted a complaint that sounded like that they wrote reasonable doubt on every single line. I said, I thought we were prosecuting this guy. We had to redraft that complaint when we got the case because it was absolute garbage. We, they charge manslaughter and third degree murder. I knew that third degree murder in Minnesota probably was gonna get dismissed. So we had second degree murder and charged all four of them. Then we, start, then we interviewed all the witnesses. They were hard to find. They were like, hey look, I don't want nothing to do with this. I already gave my statement. We said, no, you are going to tell. Folks, I don't want y'all to think Brother Keith is mean, but I told him, if you don't show up, we will send the sheriff after you. Your testimony is absolutely essential. We need you. Well, I know how they would have went in a different direction, just they don't show up. We called expert witnesses. Let me tell you, the medical examiner in this case, first of all, let me tell you, in every city, whenever you have one of these tragic murders, keep your eye on the medical examiner. Our medical examiner said, if George Floyd would have been found in his house with this toxicology, I would think it was a overdose. Excuse me, Mr. Medical Examiner? He was found under Derek Chauvin's knee, and you have video of it. If I had four wheels, I'd be a bus. <laughs> you know? So you imagine the facts away to try to argue. 
So I said, okay, Mr. Medical Examiner, what is your real, is it a homicide? He said, yes. I said, good, nailed him on that. But all homicide means is death at the hands of another. So was it, and it was, it was subdual restraint and neck compression which caused his death. Okay, we got you. But then I got my own medical examiner. Then I got my own pulmonologist. I got my own toxicologist. I, man, we went and made, that's what he, that I'm sure that they would have stuck with that medical examiner, which would have set them up for acquittal. So these cases can be won. Don't let anyone tell you they can't be. And I'm going to tell you this, Daniel Cameron running for governor in Kentucky. As a Okay, we got to roll. Okay, misserve the public on Breonna Taylor. So let me just move quickly, you guys. The, the bottom line is this sh shook the entire world. I'm telling you that in, from Buenos Aires to Brisbane, uh, uh, Australia to Cardiff to Cape Town to and many more people protested about this. And I want to make this point to you. It wasn't simply, some of these people have no idea what the racial dynamics of America are. But they understand the blue uniform and the man on the bottom of the knee. They understand government abuse. Who here has seen that photo of that one man in front of all those tanks in Tiananmen Square? Now, who, do y'all speak Mandarin? You don't need to. Government abuse of individuals raising their, who, who oppose government policy. So it's not strictly a racial issue. It's also an abuse issue. He got convicted when we saw his little cliffs on his hand. I did not know he was going to be convicted until he was convicted. I, I always, I said, we put on a great case, but I didn't know what was going to happen. And it took me a minute to catch up. Now, I just want to make, make the point. Police brutality is racialized. There's no doubt that African-Americans are the overwhelming and disproportionate target of this violence. But just because we're disproportionately the target doesn't mean we're the only ones. We're also not the only ones who are going to solve it. I picked a team that was a real team. Natasha, black sister. Zuri, Puerto Rican sister. Jerry Blackwell, who is now a federal district court judge. Jerry Blackwell, who gave the opening and the closing. Do y'all, I don't know if some of y'all who watched the trial, you might have heard Jerry say something like, you know, much has been said about how George Floyd's heart is enlarged and his heart is too big. Well, the real problem is that Derek Chauvin's heart was too small. Bam, I'm like, woo, that's the, that's the, that's the mic drop right there. <laughs> Bottom line is this, and I wanna, wanna, say this, can we break the cycle? Yes, we can if we act and uh, we'll talk. Let me tell you, this Jimmy Lee Jackson, what happened to him precipitated the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Tragedy, good things can come from tragedy if we act. And Isaac Woodard. And uh, a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. And now here's the last thing I want to say to you, then I'm going to be out of your hair. Leaders are people who will choose an uncertain but possibly better future than a certain but terrible status quo. Thank you all very much.
Mark here. I know Mark wants to get some pictures. Uh, but let's thank our brother. He is an example. He is, he is definitely an example of people in, in government service who are acting as good Samaritans, and we need more people like that. We need people like him in these roles. Also, to be specific, if I could just add, he mentioned Jimmy Lee Jackson. As you all know, I'm, I'm on the board of the Selma Jubilee, and we've been organizing that for about 30 years. I want people to be, I want to know if everybody really understands this history. Jimmy Lee Jackson was a Black Lives Matter march originally. The plan was actually to carry Jimmy Lee Jackson's casket on the march from Selma to Montgomery. When John Lewis and them were first planning it and James Bevel and Diane Nash, they were going to march the casket across the Edmund Pettus Bridge all the way to Montgomery. So we didn't call it Black Lives Matter back then, but this has always been an important part of our history. Uh, the book, oh. tell everybody where. Uh, I'm signing copies outside if anybody would like one. Uh, so uh, I'll be out there just as soon as uh, I'm, I'm dismissed. <laughs> we miss him in Congress, but we are thankful that he is doing what he's, and again, without him, the George Floyd peace would not have happened. Keith Ellison, give him a round of applause. And thank you, man. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.